Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. We've got a really special guest on with Lord Jim Knight in this episode. Um, the man is unbelievable. He's had, a, he's had a fantastic career working in the House of Lords, uh, working within education in the House of Lords as an MP. Um, he's, he's sort of uh, really high up in TES in terms of like development and I believe his um, inside of the TES is actually the fifth highest training provider for PGCEs in the UK. Um, he's really forward thinking, really wants to move education in the right way. Um, I think it's a great episode. I loved having him on. So I hope you guys enjoy as much as I did. Thanks. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. Uh, got a really special guest on this episode, not, not a normal teacher by any means, but he's had some extensive experience. I mean, he's he's worked for the, well, he's, he's a member of the House of Lords. Uh, he's been a member of Parliament for the House of Lords up to 2010, and now he's, uh, he's also uh, currently an... Uh, an educational advisor for the TES. So he, he's got extensive experience. Really excited to have you on, Jim. Um, can you just kind of like introduce yourself and kind of where you're at with education at the moment? That'd be great. Sure. So, um, yeah, as you say, having been schools minister over 10 years ago now for three years, and, um, you know, one of the things I'm proud of that we did then was a home access scheme, which got half a million young people who were offline at home, online at home. Um, uh, sadly, that was cancelled in 2010 by coalition. Uh, it would have made a difference right now if we'd have stuck with that. But um, but that reflects that I've always had this interest in technology and now we can use technology to help teachers. And so what I've been doing largely since 2010 when I went into the Lords has been working with TES um, as a big... Uh, education and technology company uh, trying to support teachers. Uh, you know, I set up TES Institute, uh, which is now the fifth largest qualifier of teachers in, in England. Um, I managed the TES resources platform for a while, um, which is you know, really busy with teachers coming on uh, every day to, to download what other teachers have shared with them. Um, I'm now also doing a few other things. So I'm advising North Anglia, who are a big group of international schools. Um, I'm, the vice, I'm the honorary president of COBIS, the Council of British International Schools. Um, I'm advising a, a new ed tech startup, which is a lovely product that I'm not allowed to talk about because I'm under a, a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but you'll hear more about that in sort of April, May. Um, and uh, two other things that, that really excite me. One is a global network of coding schools where um, in a two-year course, free to students, uh, they end up full-stack software engineers with uh, an average starting salary of about 50 grand. And get this, there's no prior attainment required. Uh, so you just play a game on a browser for an hour and a half, two hours to test cognitive ability. There are no teachers, so it's all peer-to-peer -peer learning and problem-based learning. Um, and no qualification at the end of it. And yet the employment rate is 100%. It's awesome. Um, and then the other thing that really excites me is with an, uh, we're working for a social impact agency called Purpose, um, building a movement of teachers around climate change uh, and building confidence and competence in not only teaching the science around climate change, but also trying to nurture in young people a sense that change is something that they can influence. Mm. And it's not something to get depressed and um, and fed up about, as, as many are now, as they feel like they've got no control over what's going on in their lives because of COVID. Nurture a sense of control and self-esteem and self-efficacy back in young people. Um, so I'm really interested in that too. I mean, that, that, there's a lot going on there, isn't it, Jim? I mean, <laughs> doing loads i mean i love it though because like i do feel that we need some some level of like input like into into improving education i mean i don't know if you've seen any of the other podcasts yet but a lot of educators come on and they feel like 
I mean, uh, currently the system isn't fit for purpose. I mean, we're, we're very much exam centered. We're still like trying to do the same things every year, expecting different results. I mean, millions of children every year get forgotten about because they might not have high attainment grades or, you know, like, I mean, and they kind of just like, got, they get up to 18 years old and they like, I mean, nothing really like inspires them, you know? I mean, they go through 18 years of their life never feeling like they, they found something that they're good at or they're passionate about. And I mean, we're failing so many children every year. We talk about the, the gap between the advantage and the disadvantage, but I mean, we can't ever surely reduce that gap. If we don't focus on those children that come from those disadvantaged backgrounds that aren't achieving those A's and B's, you know, I mean, like yeah. where, do you, where do you think education is and do you think it's currently fit for purpose? Yeah, I would agree with you. I think, um, yeah, our, our teachers, our school leaders are working really hard. I mean, what they've been going through during lockdown and the pandemic just doesn't bear thinking about, particularly with all the conflicting advice and the volumes of guidance and requirements that they've had to do, that most of which have got nothing to do with teaching and learning and the reason why they turn out to work every day. And so when I say that I agree that the school system in England is not fit for purpose, that's not to belittle or criticise the efforts of teachers. Mm. It's the it's the fr it's the framework within which they're operating for which you know they should rightly blame politicians like me. Um, you know we've uh, we've created this straitjacket of accountability around the system, which means that we are overly focused on testing uh, instead of learning, yeah, we, and we probably spend about three billion pounds a year in England on tests for schools. And just imagine, let's say we cut that down to a billion and we had two billion pounds more to spend on education and learning. And we had all the time back that it's currently spending on test preparation and revision. And we had that time back for learning. Yeah, it'd be great. And you know, fundamentally, it's an accountability system. You know, and, and there's Ofsted, of course, as part of that, which doesn't trust teachers. Mm. And teaching is the biggest single profession in the world there's 18 million of them and it's a profession and we should train and teach and treat teachers like the professionals that they are and that means trusting them more you know we didn't have exams last summer we're not going to have exams this summer the world is not going to end without those exams you know, it, it will still keep turning and you know i think there is an important place for summative assessment but not anywhere near as much of it you know there are really good jurisdictions that just have exams when when kids are leaving school at 18 and my sense is that we should we should go down that road i don't think uh you know, we have huge breadth up to 16 with all of those gcses that we're asking young people to take and then a ridiculous amount of narrow depth at A level. Um, and we we can do with a compromise between the two. And, and my sense, you know, and I agree with former Secretary of State under Thatcher, Ken Baker, former Secretary of State under Blair, Estelle Morris. Um, I agree with them that we should probably end the national curriculum at 14. And, you know, then, yeah, maybe there's a case for a, um, a summative testing at 14 of people's understanding of of the content of the national curriculum but then you don't have any exams at 16 and you free up the system 14 to 19 to be able to then have a broader education you know in, in many ways not dissimilar to what the international baccalaureate diploma offers um, but that also has yeah, not just knowledge we're overly obsessed with academic knowledge yeah um, there's a really important place for academic knowledge, but there's also a really important place for applying that knowledge for physical activity and physical literacy, essentially, mm. for creativity. And we're just out of balance in this country. And other countries are getting a competitive advantage on us because what they're ending up doing is they are starting to reform their systems, starting to nurture some of the skills, essentially they're leadership skills, aren't they? They're, they're, they're the skills of saying, actually, I can control events. If I work with others, if I lead others, I can 
I can change things. I can change things in my family. I can change things in my school, in my classroom, in my town, in my city, in my country, in the world if I need to. And that's that's about leadership and whether or not people will follow you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's such a good point because you're right. I mean, there is such a focus on like the academic knowledge and I understand there is a place for it. I'm, I, even to an extent, I'd say, look, I understand why there would be some level of exams, but it's not the be all and end all, is it? I mean, nowadays you don't even need a degree to really get a job, you know? Like, I mean, it's uh, what, what employers look for aren't necessarily your your degree, unless you need a qualification for what you do, like teaching and, and sort of being a doctor and a lawyer or whatever. I mean, that, like that's absolutely fine but nowadays people just get a business management degree just because they think it's right to get a degree and then they end up with 40 grand debt paying it off for the rest of their life getting a nine-to-five basic job you know i mean they're literally stuck in this rat race i mean and even then that's if those if those people go to university i mean like like what, what do you think we should be doing i mean i know you said about the soft skills and which are now life skills right and it's yeah. about their creativity their innovative innovation but how can we bring that into the curriculum without kind of taking away too much of the academic uh, element of of education well in a way i'd go back to a little bit of what you were suggesting earlier on that yeah the current system at its best works for two-thirds of young people and fails a third. You know, it's never done better than that. Um, and and that's just not good enough. And, and part of that is that academic knowledge-led approach doesn't work for everyone. It just doesn't engage everyone. And my my sense is there's a lot of talent that's being that's going to waste in amongst those third who are just turned off learning because of the nature of it, who would excel if the learning was more applied, if they could see the relevance of the learning, yeah. if they were, if their curiosity was being nurtured to ask questions rather than answer questions. And, um, and the learning was more of a, a form of discovering than just being told what the model answer is uh, and, and drilled into a, into a model answer. I don't, yeah, and teachers don't enjoy that, I don't think. Um, yeah, there, there may be some satisfaction when the kids get their results and they're good. Um, there may be some satisfaction when the school gets an outstanding Ofsted. But in the end, you, know, you don't go into teaching to get an outstanding Ofsted. You go into teaching right. in order to develop children. Yeah. And if a third of children aren't being developed well, um, then I think what we can do is we can create room in the timetable by, by changing some of the way in which teaching happens. And, you know, and it's hard, don't get me wrong, I, I know it's harder in many ways to do more cross-curricular, more project, more inquiry-based learning. But I, I don't think we've got any alternative if we are serious about a universal school system that works for every child. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's uh, the thing is, when you have people like Catherine Burbell Singh, who's the head teacher of Michaela Community School, I mean, I had her on my podcast earlier this week, and her views are very much like we should stand at the front of the classroom every child learns the same i mean i even quit i even said but i don't learn the same as somebody else i mean i, I work in a completely different way and but she's like well no it's all it, i mean you can learn in the exact same way i mean like what would you say to those traditionalist educators that that have that view uh, yeah catherine bird was saying is a is a really good school leader who has a very clear view and leads the school in that particular way. It's not where I'd send my children. It's not my thing at all. Because you've also got to look at what the end game is. I mean, I've not spoken to her, so you know, I don't know what she'd say. But my sense is that there's a lot of those people who aren't questioning the fundamental assumption that's at the heart of our school system, which is successful children go to university. And ambitious parents all want their children to go to university. Now, that may be true, largely, at the moment, but I think that is changing because yeah. you look at what employers are doing and you look at the cost of university and you start to see the system cracking. So in the States, Starbucks, 
who employ a lot of people on low wages. But even if you're a barista there, if you've been there for three months or more, they will pay for you to take a bachelor's degree at Arizona State University, which is one of the most innovative universities in the world. Mm. Um, if you work for AT&T, another huge employer in the US, then they are paying for micro-credentialed higher education uh, at Udacity for, for all of their staff. We're starting to see more and more employers wanting to hire talent younger and earlier and grow the talent from within. And, you know, as part of that, in this country, we've seen the growth of degree apprenticeships. So a degree apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce is more sought after than a place at Oxford University. And, you know, it would be because you can, you'll get a degree from Rolls-Royce in partnership with the university, and you'll have earned money mm. while you've been learning rather than paying out debt while you've been learning. It's a no-brainer. And we'll see more and more of that. And, um, and that interplay is going to make parents, I think especially from the more disadvantaged backgrounds where they worry more about debt, say, mm. well, hang on a minute. Are you sure you want to take on 50 grand's worth of debt to get a bachelor's degree, especially in some of the humanities. I mean, today's a day with the Novavax vaccine where we're massively celebrating science and, and the achievements of, of science. And, you know, I've got no doubt that that's about people working hard in schools like Michaela, as well as many others at their science, going on to do uh, science degrees in universities and then going into research and doing wonderful you know, life-saving, world-beating things like that vaccine development. But there's a whole bunch of others who, you know, I did a, a geography and social and political science degree. Well, there's no saying I'm going to get a job at the end of that anymore. Mm. There was when I went to university. You, know, you could choose a job for life pretty much. Yeah. But now, that doesn't exist. You, what, you, what you're certain of is debt. You're not certain of a job. Mm. And in that context... People go, well, I'm not sure that's that's a good deal. You know, maybe you're better off. You know, you're going to be working till you're in your 70s. You know, the retirement age is now 67. It's it's going up and it's going to be in, in the 70s. So you've got more time. Why not go finish school, get a job, see how that is, see what you really want to do. Don't go to university if you don't know what you want to do with your life. Don't do it just because it's the yeah. next thing because yeah, exactly. you don't know what else to do because yeah. it's really expensive go to university if you believe it's what you want and if you believe you know that that degree is going to give you the value that you need it to, to deliver in exchange for 50 grand if yeah. not have a look at some of the other options too yeah and that's all if, if, if that happens that's going to change everything because then the traditionalists stood in front of the classroom are going to be teaching things which you know who needs to know about fronted adverb adverbials? I don't. You know, clearly Lord Knight doesn't need to know about fronted adverbials. Uh, yeah, we're teaching all sorts of things that we don't need to do. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I understand there is some elements that we shouldn't lose our British culture and we shouldn't lose some cultural aspects of what we teach. But I mean, we don't have to necessarily put that in an in, in exam set centered approach. I mean, like even things like Shakespeare, I mean, you should be doing that as projects, as like plays and like, because that's going to build confidence. That's going to build like character and, and be, be like, for the, do you know what I mean? I mean, there's more to life than just like academic results. I mean, if I could go back in, in my, my life, I wouldn't have gone to university because I feel personally it didn't do anything for my career. I reckon if I started off earlier, I would have like I would have like sort of been ahead of where I was when I when I left university. But I am where I am today and I'm grateful for it. But at the same time, there's a lot of children that kind of come from deprived families and maybe have families that come from foreign sort of backgrounds and that are migrating to the UK because they want to give their children good opportunities. And they think that that's through the UK education system. Right. I mean, that is like you go to you go to a good school and then you go to university and that's and then you, you're set for life. But actually, that's a real big misconception that we have here in the UK. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, like those those exams, like the three billion pound in what we spend in exams. Right. I mean, we could be using that on actual development of, of schools. And like, we look at like mental health that's gone through the roof and we, we're spending billions on that every year in a reactive approach. 
Why aren't we using some of that three billion that we're spending on exams on actual emotional intelligence so these children don't have mental health problems later down the line? You know, I mean, like, where do you stand with that? Well, I think, um, you know, I remember back when I was a minister, we had something called Every Child Matters. And as part of that commitment to sort of rounded education and to, you know, thinking in a much more child-centered way, we had something called SEAL, the social and emotional aspect of learning, um, which we had in primary schools. And I remember uh, a story about SEAL. Um, and I think it was the son went to Nick Gibb, the, who was then the shadow schools minister, who is now the schools minister, and asked him about it. And he described it as ghastly. And I just disagree with Nick. I think social and emotional learning is really important. Absolutely. It's, it's really it's it's hugely important for us uh, all as as people to be able to form good and healthy relationships, to be able to be articulate with our emotions, to be able to be, you know, humans are fundamentally social animals. So to be successful socially mm-hmm. is also really important for your future success. These are critical skills and right now as a result of covid you know there's one and a half million additional mental health needs amongst our children one and a half million and the cam service is just not going to be able to deal with all of that and so we do need more resource into mental health we schools are going to have to play their part i'm afraid and you know, could we spend some of that three billion on school nurses, for example? If every uh, secondary school, um, every cluster of schools, every school even had a school nurse, so you had a health practitioner on site, um, being able to deal with particularly mental health, but also you know they could do vaccinations. Wouldn't that be weird? You know, we could have an infrastructure in place in every school that could do vaccinations. Right now, that sounds like a good idea. I think there's all sorts of solutions we could bring to bear, but we need to have the right priorities. Yeah. Well, and what, what do you think they are? I mean, like, if you had to kind of like sort of pinpoint the real fundamental issues and what we really need to improve in our education system in the UK to compete globally, not just to kind of actually move us forward, but actually to compete globally. Like, what, what do you think the like main things that we need to really address as soon as possible? Well, I think at its core is nurturing a mindset in young people that is one where they feel empowered, they feel that they can do things, that they feel that they can start businesses, that they can solve problems, that they have that emotional resilience, uh, the social skills that they need to succeed, that failure is not anything to be scared of, it's just something to learn from. And uh, that requires a very different approach to one that's all about exam results. Mm. Um, uh, and you know we've just we've we've discussed that. Uh, you know that in turn needs it needs parents to be engaged with this and think about this as well as um, people within the education system because they need to we need to think about what their ambitions are for their children because they're hugely influential on children and and, and they vote and therefore they're influential on policymakers. So yeah, there's a whole conversation to be had with parents around all of this, but. Um, but if we can redesign around a system that nurtures those things, that means we've got to redesign our assessment system. Because mm-hmm. you can assess some of these things. You know, one, one form of assessment is exhibition. You know, if, if every school were exhibiting the result of projects, of applied learning, of making things, of discovery science and showing that off to parents and to the employer community you know within their um environs then that's an accountability for young people that's an accountability for the school but it's 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 just of a different sort and it's just saying actually we can get over this thing where everything has to have a certificate and everything has to have a qualification because we don't necessarily need those if once you've got a job you're kind of as good as your last job. Um, And people don't really look too much at whether or not you've got academic qualifications. 
And yeah, as I said, this work I'm doing with um, with Founders Forum on uh, the coding schools. You know, employers really need full stack software engineers. They don't give two hoots when they're giving out 50 grand a year jobs about whether or not anyone's got a degree or, or a single GCSE. They just want to know whether you can do the job. And mm. as, as data becomes smarter, employers are, are increasingly no longer filtering on the basis of qualifications on CVs. They're filtering on the basis of being able to interrogate the data and see what people can actually do, not a proxy for what they can do, which is all the yeah. qualification is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I never look at a, a CV. I mean, I, I, I really, I, until you've actually spoken to somebody and actually uh, understand where they come from, um, not, not where they come from, but actually who they are and what they're about. I mean, that's when you really decide if that person's going to be suitable for the job. I mean, sometimes I don't even like people with any experience. I like people that have come in like into the market fresh with fresh perspective so that they can challenge me and come up with different ideas, you know? And I think, I think that's, a, that's the big problem here in the UK is we've got this system and it's put on GCSEs. And if you don't get those GCSEs, automatically so many doors are shut, but actually those children can still be suitable for certain jobs. Um, yeah. and that's, that, and do, you know, do you know what I mean? And there needs to be a way that we can kind of show them off it for their for the best abilities. Yeah, no, I mean, th there's a young man in my family who's um, ended up doing really well. In you know, he did a double A level qualification. I don't know what it was in business studies. He did really well, and so he's now got a place at a a good university, and you know, he's very happy about that. But his GCSEs weren't great, but you know, even talking to him then, when he was sixteen, I knew he'd be really successful, um, because he's got that confidence. He knows how to talk to people. He he knows how to sell. He knows how to, and you know, he's engaging. He's charming. You know, you, you meet people like that. You don't look at their qualifications. You just go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah you're all right. You'll work <laughs> out. You know, you've got, um, you're good with people. Um, and as long as you, know, you can do a bit of mental arithmetic and you know, you know enough about the world to make sense of the world for people so that you can have a sensible conversation and they'll respect you, you'll be fine. I don't need to see your qualification. I'll give you a job. Yeah. It's, it's mental, isn't it? I mean, like, it's, we, we've, the problem is that we've had this system in the UK for such a long time. And the, the, I think the biggest thing for certain teachers school leaders is, is it's a massive change i mean does, will that mean more work and will, will that like kind of take them away from actually being able to still deliver like their the curriculum to the children because offset like it expects you to to deliver a curriculum or a certain knowledge in a curriculum in a certain way you know i mean i know there is some autonomy but at the same time you still have to like teach them the content that's going to be in the exam right um so i mean what what, what needs to happen with that then like does content completely need to be completely like sort of flexible and adaptable to like your students? I mean, like, or is it, does it still need to be like a generic one throughout the country? Well, I, I do think that there is, it's important that we have some kind of inspection system so that we've got some accountability and we can, and parents have got some assurance that about quality. Yeah, I think that's, that's important, but it, the, the way we do inspection needs to change in terms of what they're looking for, what they're looking at. Um, based on what the vision for future schooling might be and we've discussed that um and then and then uh, yeah, yeah i mean assessment can and should change and, and should be more rounded um you know way back in 2005 uh 2004-5 a guy called mike tomlinson did a review for tony blair of a-levels and whether or not we should keep them. And he recommended that we abandon A-levels in favour of um, a, a more rounded diploma qualification. Um, and I think we should revisit some of that thinking. Um, yeah, as I've said, we should get rid of GCSEs anyway. And if you had a, a, a more rounded diploma at the, at the end of the 14 to 19 phase, that could include, for example, a community project. So we were asking every child before they finished in education to have done something to add some social value back into their community. Um, it can include an extended project. And we know that the extended project qualification uh, helps young people really well when they get, if they go to university. So we know that that's academically sound for those that can, you know, are 
are, are academically inclined. Have some balance. I think, yeah, hanging on to, to English and maths, maybe a, a language, and then allowing people to just explore their passions. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's important. I mean, like I've spoken to this uh, this founding head teacher of a school in in uh, in the USA, and it's uh, it's called New England Innovation Academy, right? So it's very much innovation is at the core, and then the subjects are around it. So they have an innovation lab. They might teach them a topic, but then it's them for them to go use that innovation lab to actually learn more about the topic and explore their passions and and kind of go with it. I mean, it's launching this September, so I mean, it's really exciting stuff. I mean, there is I know some other very other end. Of the spectrum right and we're probably really far from doing that here in the uk but it just shows it can happen because pete i mean he's working the founder and founding head teacher is working with someone from the mit um, which is obviously a really really high well uh, well-known university and they're basically getting rid of assessment so it's it'll be very much based on kind of like the softer skills the presentation the innovation it's all incorporated and not in the exams but the way that they've done it and they've, they've confirmed it with mit is that they can still be used as assessment to get into the university so there is a way to do it but we've got to collaborate with the universities in some respects to because because that's that's in some respects like the university's got to like like give credit to the way that we are assessing our children in in uh, gcses and or a levels or whatever you know um so, so I, mean, I mentioned i mentioned micro credentialing earlier on as something that um you know is, is happening more and more in terms of work-based learning certainly mm. um but you know with uh, some of the big online uh, university providers and yeah, micro-credentialing would be a perfectly valid way of, of doing things for uh, for schools too. Yeah, the, this, and the assessment industry is ready for change as well. They understand that drilling young people in the skill of being able to sit on a small desk in a large sports hall and answer questions using a paper and pen <laughs> is a is an outdated and ridiculous form of assessment and, and is a skill that they'll never ever use again in the rest of their lives. And uh, you know, I'm hopeful that there'll be a, a proper realization, yeah, and partly COVID may change the game, where people realize that technology is something that we all use in our lives. Uh, it's not going away, the digital world is here. And whether you're a learner, researching things, creating new knowledge, um, I'm sure those vaccination scientists will have used some online tools. Whether you know whatever you're doing, where, you know, if you're an office worker, whatever, you, you're going to have to be highly literate digitally. So why don't we use that in the classroom more? Mm. Why don't we use that in assessment? If assessment was done using technology. Everyone would use technology in schools because schools wouldn't want to do well in the assessment. Mm. Um, and and we need to get to that place pretty fast because it's madness what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're, we're, in a, we're literally trying to do the same thing every year, expecting different results. I mean, every year I hear teachers complaining. Every year teachers are leaving the profession. And it's like we keep doing the same thing over and over again, you know? And I feel like... I mean, there's always going to be some people that aren't, like, for the movement. I mean, like, I think the big problem here in the UK is that we've got an education secretary that only ever lost 18 to 24 months over the last two decades, right? And I think the big problem I, I see from an outsider, again, I'm not a politician and I'm not a teacher, but the big problem that I see with that is there's no, like, no um, st like stability and sustainability in what they do. I mean, every time an education secretary comes in, they want to spend money elsewhere, put, a, put something else in the curriculum that they feel is important, like just to make their mark in some respects. And then they go on to move on like after 18 to 24 months. But, I mean, I don't know how much you can get do in that time. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that argument a lot. And I... Um... Obviously, there's truth in it, but at the same time, you know, if I think back over the last 20 years that I've been in Parliament, for the first half, broadly, um, the dominant thinker, regardless of who was Secretary of State, was Andrew Adonis. And for the second half, the dominant thinker, thinkers, regardless of who was Secretary of State, were Michael Gove and Nick Gibb. And Gove still influences what happens in education, and Nick Gibb is still there. And he's been there for 10 years, with one year off for good behavior. And, um, and so 
I think it's more fundamental than changes of Secretary of State. It's more about a fundamental disagreement about what school's for and whether or not you want to carry on with just a big filtering system that filters um, the more advantaged into university and leaves the rest to hopefully pick up a, a skilled job through some vocational training. If not, they're going to you know, be on and off benefits and you know, and in low pay for the rest of their lives. Um, or whether or not you want to create an empowering and enabling school system. And you, and you take your choice. And I know which one I choose. I mean, I'd obviously choose the latter, right? I, I like yourself, but... The, but the problem is, it, it, does it need to come from people in power like this? This it, this change because I know some schools will want to do it, but it's yeah. obviously there is that big worry of how will it fit into the framework? Am I going to get penalised if I change my curriculum too much, or the way that I teach? Yeah, it, it's um, it's a good question. I think I think if eighty million teachers in the world all moved at once things would change anyway. <laughs> How do we make that happen then? <laughs> well, well, exactly. That's the hard bit. And, and broadly, um, teachers are relatively compliant. You know, schooling, you know, and, and to school someone is all about making them compliant. And there's something in the culture of schooling that is, is about following the rules and behaving well and doing as you're told. And that's, that makes it hard to create a big movement for change amongst the amongst the profession. Yeah, um, you've got you've got the innovators and the outriders, and there's a really important, it's really important to celebrate those to nurture those. I chair something called Whole Education, which is a network of uh, well, it's services to schools that that are, are delivering whole child education, not just the cognitive bit of the child. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that within the current accountability system. So there's some good examples there amongst uh, the, the membership of our education of schools that are doing a really good job despite the accountability system. Mm. But I'm afraid I don't think that that's going to happen universally until we change the accountability system. Yeah. And how far do you think we are from doing that? Because obviously it's it's a, it's a big thing at the moment, isn't it? I mean, it literally. I mean, the head teachers have the same level of pressure that football managers do, and and you're talking about like seven eight figures compared to like the the five to six figures that head teachers would. Uh, I mean, it's it's making teachers leave the profession. Head teachers leave the profession. It's just it's literally like an ever ending cycle. So I mean, how do like how far are we from actually being able to change that? Well, I think we can start to see, yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist, and we can start to see the beginnings of a movement for change in that employers are increasingly vocal about wanting a better, more labour market-aligned school system. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a recent survey by YouGov for the Age Foundation that showed that parents agree with teachers that it needs to change. Um and that's the crucial thing. If parents, you know, perhaps as a result of COVID, and you know, I do my fair share of parenting during lockdown uh, and and teaching during lockdown, um, and perhaps parents getting closer to their children as learners will make them see that there's stuff that they're learning that they don't need, that there's stuff that they're learning that makes them really unhappy, uh, that there's a whole bunch of stuff that's irrelevant. To, to their future prospects, and that they will join that clamour for change. Mm. And you know, if parents moved as one to say, this is going to change, then politicians would follow very rapidly because mm. parents vote. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about the relevance of things that children are learning. I mean, just those, like, just like in terms of even like voting, right? I mean, nobody go, you don't go through school getting taught how the, 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 the diplomatic system works here in the UK. I mean, we, we kind of just throw things on TV, like we see things on TV and whatever sounds the best, we kind of go with it. Nobody actually knows how to read a manifesto unless you've had some experience or somebody's taught you how to do it, which like majority of people go through the education system actually not knowing what they're voting 
looking for and actually like that you can you can contact your your local mp and like and they'll have to get back to you just like simple things i mean we're not even yep. teaching kids how to like save up for a mortgage or financial planning or like just actually do you know what i mean i mean there's so much that's not relevant i mean that is relevant to the real world that we're just not preparing kids for i know and um <clears throat> you know ministers would say oh but it's in the national curriculum if you look at psag uh, and the new PSAG curriculum syllabus, and you look at citizenship and blah, blah, blah. But we also know those are the bits of the, of the curriculum that are not in the accountability system. They're not in the e-bag. And so they are increasingly ignored. And um, it's a bit like applied learning. You know, we talk about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. How much technology and engineering do you see in schools these days? STEM has become S and N. Uh, you know, the decline of design and technology as a subject is is shocking. And, you know, and yet that's where so much opportunity lies in the future, is mm. in that subject. And we we have to shift that priority. You know, the EBAC, I think, was a real step backwards. Uh, I would like mayors, you know, Andy in Manchester or, or the other Andy in Birmingham or Sadiq in London or wherever, to just say, oh, hang on a minute, we're not going to, schools in, in my city are not going to do the back anymore. Uh, we're going to do the London back or the Manchester back or the Birmingham back and, uh, and populate it with a more rounded set of measures for a more rounded education. Um, at a stroke, that would change things. Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I, I, look, even as an employer myself, I genuinely feel when when, the, when I've had those kids that have left school at 16 to 18, they've just not been ready. I mean, and, and the big problem I found is that they need everything spoon fed to them. I mean, like they, they just sometimes lack the initiative to get the, the get up and go and do something themselves. I mean, like I, I, I genuinely I can see the pattern, the, how relatable that is to the education system because they, they literally throw in like given information, information content content to pass an exam actually where is the you're not you're not getting them to like you're not giving them leadership skills you're not giving them the entrepreneur skills or like the ability to think for yourself do you know what i mean and that is actually killing creativity and innovation in children instead of actually pushing like putting it into them i know we hear that quite a lot in uh, online and on social media about killing creativity and and individuality like the current education system is doing that i mean would you agree with that statement yeah totally yeah i what employers say more than anything is, you know, they don't. If someone starts a job and is coming to them all the time going, yeah, yeah, but so what's the model answer? How do I do that? And, and uh, it, they want people with initiative, as you say. They want people who uh, create value. That's what business is there for, is to create value. And you yeah. only create value by doing things new and doing things differently. You know, we don't have jobs in factories very much anymore. You know, we have, that's what our education system is geared towards, is most people going and getting a, a shitty job in a factory and, and a few lucky ones going to the university. That, that economy doesn't exist. That world doesn't exist. And we're just serving people really badly by perpetuating a system that is not nurturing those creative thinking skills that we now need in the modern digital economy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how, you know, like, do you have these conversations with head teachers and leaders in schools yourself? Yeah. Um, I mean, some, some lead school leaders, you know, they've, they've become successful because they're good at okay. uh, making this, this current system work. Yeah. And so they're pretty defensive of it. Um, but by and large, um, most people I speak to totally get it. Mm. And, you know, the irony is the, the leaders that, that are most likely to get it are in the independent sector, which we associate with traditional education. Mm. And yet the independent sector has time and resource for team sports, for the performing arts, for the creative arts, for for engineering and making things. Um, and they do those things on a longer school day, and that creates a rounded education. So they are getting a competitive advantage. They used to have a competitive advantage because they were 
producing better academic schools. To an extent, the state-funded sector has caught up with them um, on academic schools, but the competitive advantage that the independent sector now has on a rounded education has gone leaps and bounds because of the sacrifices that have been made in the state-funded sector in order to get to that academic excellence. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've spoken to many international school leaders that are very much putting the child, it's a very child centered approach. So it's all about finding their passion and the niche and really helping them excel when to the point these kids are running to school because they can't wait to like what, what, to, what they're going to learn that day. Whereas in the UK, if you speak to us, like anyone up to the age of 18 and you ask them like, what school was like today, they're like, it's boring. I mean, how sad is that? You go through 18 years of your life being bored. I mean, like, I don't want to do a job that I'm bored in. I don't want to wake up every morning and think, oh, crap. I've got to go to work, you know, like, what's your children? I've got, I've got a good friend of mine who is, um, she's a high school teacher in Palo Alto in, in the United States in California. And she's been teaching, I mean, she's in her seventies, so she's been teaching a very long time. Um, and she teaches a journalism, uh, course in high school. It's the most popular course in Palo Alto high school, which is a publicly funded school. And, when I first met Esther, it was during the school year and she was in London. It was during the school term. And I said, well, what's happening to your class? And she said, oh, don't worry about that. Um, I've got a robot doing that for me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, oh, I can go back to my hotel now. I can log on and the robot will come out of its dock and it will wander around the classroom and just see what everyone's doing. Um, and basically, they are so motivated by what they're doing, they don't really need me to be there. And so as long as I drop in and give them a bit of encouragement every now and then, it's fine. And basically what, what she has developed there is a journalism course where students are learning journalism skills, both filming, you know, so as TV and film journalists as well as um, written journalists. They're producing sports publications, in-school publications, lifestyle publications, photography publications, um, a school TV cha channel, a school radio channel, and so on. And they're, the, they're their own editors. They, you know, they divvy up the work as you would in any kind of media outlet. And they're hugely motivated by it because it's self-directed learning and they understand the value they're doing. They're learning great skills because they're learning how to research something assimilate it really quickly, and then communicate it back out. Great skills to use in uh, whether you're going to be academic or whether you're going to be in the world of work. And Esther's written a book, um, Moonshot for Education, where she's basically saying, we need more of this. We can't expect everyone to move at once. But, you know, inspired by Google, and she would be because her daughter is the chief executive of YouTube, and they founded Google in her garage. Um, Esther says, you know, they've got 20% Google time. Why don't we have 20% moonshot time? You know, she would have moonshot Monday. So everyone is rushing to school on a Monday because that's the day when it's much more self-directed. That's the day when they're pursuing their passions, when they're doing their projects, when they're doing the stuff that they really enjoy. And if that means they're editing their, the, the newspaper, if it means that they're building something, if they're solving a problem, if they're whatever, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. You know, could we do 20% time for you know, in the timetable for this kind of thing? Could we do 10%? That would be a start. Half a day a week, just on this different style of teaching and learning. Maybe we should all start there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I won't take up too much more of your time, Jim, but I mean, as just to kind of sum it up, and, and like, any, like, is there anything else that you feel or anything that we've touched on that you feel is, is mightily important? And, and for any school leaders or teachers that are listening, um, the, the importance of what we're, we're talking about here and why we need to sort of implement it. Well, I, I would say, first of all, you know, it is the most important profession in the world. Mm -hmm. Stay with it um, while we drive the change. Think about, you know, can you find, you know, make space in the timetable to do some things differently. And my plea for this year is to say, look, we'll, we'll come out of COVID with all of these mental health problems. So now is a good time to do this. Now is a good time to uh, give, welcome children back and then give them some control back over their learning because those that have prospered from home learning will have been used to that anyway. And those that haven't prospered from home learning will be desperate to have some efficacy, to, to, to be empowered over something. Mm -hmm. And then use 
the fact that this year, once COVID has abated, will be a year focused a lot around climate change because we've got the big intergovernmental conference in Glasgow in November where all the world's leaders will come together to agree the next set of targets around climate change. And maybe think about how we will work with young people to make a difference and reduce carbon in their own environment. So it might be by eating differently. It might be by traveling differently. It might be by growing something. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things, and there's loads of learning to be had in that. There's all the science behind climate change, but there's the science around what happens when you choose that different travel choice, what happens when you choose that different food choice, what happens when we grow things and capture carbon that way. Yeah, there's such learning to be had. So we can help solve the mental health crisis and give kids some sense of empowerment over the climate. Yeah. What a win that could be this year. Absolutely. I mean, like, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, what I really want is, is is a future where every child has an opportunity to succeed, not just those kids that are privileged or those kids that can do well in exams. Yeah. I, I really just want to give every child an opportunity to succeed and actually every kid to feel that by the time that they've left school, even if they don't know what career they want, they know who they are. And I think that's a big problem in schools at the moment is we often like question what career do you want? What degree do you want to do? Like, where do you want to go in life? But actually nobody asks a child, like what kind of person do you want to become? Because once you know who you are, like that's, then you're more likely to find something that you're going to be passionate about. But until that point, you're just making stuff up, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And you know, if, if you're the child who, you know, on a Friday lunchtime, I deliver for the local food bank here in Lewisham. So, you know, so I, I know what the recipients of, of this look like. If you're a child who's been brought up in a household where you're reliant on the food bank, where you're the wrong side of the digital divide, where lockdown for you has been really, really challenging because there's no resource in your house and you've probably been sat in front of the TV for most of the time or on a video game. What are we going to, you know, talking to them about universities and about Progress 8 and about learning objectives at the beginning of a lesson, that's just irrelevant. Get inside their heads and go, well, how, how am I going to change their lives now? You know, they've lost so much during this period. How are we going to make a difference for them? And if that means just stalling the timetable for a bit longer while we just give them back a bit of self-belief and a bit of a sense that, yeah, their situation and their family's situation can change. Um, that's the most important thing. Mm. And starting with those kids. Absolutely. I mean, we'll finish there, Jim. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's really good advice. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of teachers that will believe that anyway. And, but I think we just, I think like we just need that push now, don't we? I think we just need that, that collaboration. We need people to come together and actually unite and, and actually move forward because it can work. We only have to look at what the unions did a couple of weeks ago and how they overturned the decision by parliament. I mean, why can't we just continue that momentum and actually think what is going to benefit these kids? I know there were going to be people that disagree. Fair enough. But I think the majority of people will agree that what we're doing is not letting all the kids flourish and there can be a better way, you know, and that's, that's, yeah. what, that's what I hope that people take from conversations like this, you know, and people will like challenge ideas and question things and actually ask themselves, like, what is the point of education? I mean, is it fit for purpose? And hopefully they'll see that, you know, not all of it is at the moment. So it needs to be improved. But yeah, Jim, look, I really appreciate you coming on. And for everyone that's listening and watching, thanks, thanks for obviously listening and watching. Um, but and see you next week. Everyone for watching. Thanks, uh, Jim, for coming on. It was really good to kind of speak about your views and kind of hear your thoughts of what should be done. Um, please, if you guys did like the episode, please give us a like, give us a subscribe. And yeah, I mean, there's going to be three episodes a week, every week until the end of the academic year. So please, please stay tuned. And until next episode, take care and keep safe.